We'll open your Bibles to the book of Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, and we will attempt this morning to work our way through the entirety of chapter 3. We'll begin our reading in verse 1 in just a moment. Again, Genesis chapter 3. I suspect that uh, most of us have some familiarity we've seen, and maybe uh, we own uh, some of this merchandise, uh, that is a, a clothing line that is uh, designed around the slogan, life is good. And I concur. Life is good. It is a good gift from God. As, and as we look at it in contrast to death, we see with great clarity that life is indeed Good. Now, I suspect, and I have no idea who the manufacturers of these products are, I suspect that they came up with the slogan uh, that it arose out of a far different worldview than I have cultivated over these last uh, 50 years. That is that uh, this goodness is probably something that arises out of uh, living as one's authentic self, uh, pursuing uh, some type of pleasurable self-actualization. Now I'm announcing today the start of my own clothing line. Heath will be designing the logo here very soon. We'll make our second million since we've failed on our first million. Life is good, but our line will say life is tough. Yes indeed, life is good. It is a good gift from God that you are alive today is a good thing. And it is a gift from a gracious God. But indeed, yes, life is tough. There, there really can be pleasures in this life, accomplishment, achievement, activities, uh, associations that, that bring a, a great deal of happiness. And for those of us who know Christ, there can be joy even in the midst of the toughness, of the, uh, the, the difficulty. And so life is indeed good. And yes, indeed, life is certainly tough. Now, we can say something similar about what's been under our consideration in this sermon series, that indeed, life is good, and marriage is good, but marriage is, think with me now, come on men, you chicken, <laughs> you women can chime in too, but yeah, marriage is tough. It, it requires some effort, some intentionality. And so, as we've thought about this business of marriage and saw how God has uh, design, designed and defined this business of marriage, that marriage indeed is an excellent, excellent idea, then why in the world is it so tough? Well, the answer for us lies in Genesis 3. 
Yeah. God made a wise, made an excellent, made a good, made a beneficial design. A beneficial determination in giving to his image bearers this thing that we call marriage. But it is tough. And so let's think this morning about what the problem might be that makes this good thing called marriage so often such a tough thing. Read with me, if you will. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But uh, the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were open, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me. And I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Curse is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of the living, and the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest 
he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Pray with me. Father, once again, we thank you for your word. It is your word. It is for our good. May we hear your word. May we understand your word. I pray for the ability to communicate uh, your truth to these, uh, your people. God, that you would so work in all of us that we would be more like our Savior, uh, Jesus Christ. May we leave here today having determined that it was good to be in the house of the Lord, and may we never, ever be the same. Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I can't overstate the importance of Genesis 1 through 3. The account, the description of creation, of rebellion, of redemption, and I believe even a foreshadowing of the consummation. If you neglect or misunderstand the meaning and implications of Genesis 1 through 3, you will never understand the Bible. The Bible simply makes no sense. I would even argue that everything in the entirety of the Bible past Genesis 3 is an ex explanation of the implications of what has occurred in Genesis 1 through 3. So if you go off bubble here at the very beginning, I will assure you, you will never get back within the bubble down the road somewhere. And so, you will not only not understand the Bible, you will not understand the gospel. You will never appreciate the greatness of a Savior whose name is Jesus Christ. To allude to the great Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon, that is, that I know I'm a great sinner. Therefore, I needed a great Savior. And so, beginning in Genesis 1 through 3, we become aware of the greatness, of the depth of our sin. And that, when we are born again, gives us some understanding and some deeper appreciation of the greatness of a Savior who died at Calvary for us. In fact, to kind of combine a bit of Westminster Confession and a bit of John Piper, if you miss this in Genesis 1 through 3, you will fail to glorify God by enjoying Him and His marvelous gospel of grace now and possibly forever. So, it is essential. It is important. Now, by way of review, I want sometimes when I finished sermons, I look back and I go, did I really get that said well enough that people understood what I was trying to say? And uh, most of the time I go, nah, it wasn't well communicated, they, they didn't get it, and I missed, you know, I missed the target. But hopefully that, that you're aware of what I have been arguing on the basis of Scripture for. First, God is the creator of everything that exists. There is nothing that exists or that will ever exist apart from his intentional creative activity. God designed his creation to reveal 
his greatness. Reality encompasses every aspect of the physical and metaphysical created order. He created, excuse me, he, reality is rooted in God's will to give testimony to himself. And there, I keep going back to the danger of what's going on in the culture of this assault upon reality. If there is no reality, there is no gospel. It's all lost. And so we're having important debates. We are dissenting for absolutely essential reasons. God created human beings. He created them as his image bearers. His image bearers are the pinnacle of the creative order, or created order. His image bearers were created as both male and female. Male and female image bearers are equal in terms of intrinsic worth and essence before God. And, and even within the created order, there is to be a mutuality of respect and appreciation for all who bear the image of God. And that's why one of the reasons this, this whole concept of male and female image bearers is why we argue so strenuously against the abomination of abortion. It is the assault. It is the murder of the unborn bearer of the image of God. God charged his image bearers with the responsibility to represent him on earth. They were to reproduce and fill the earth with other image bearers, and they were to rule and subdue creation. They were charged with a stewardship for which they will give an account. So again, let's make sure we maintain the the creator-creature distinctive, and the creator will, will, will demand of the creature an account for how they have carried out the stewardship of everything entrusted to them, which probably first and foremost is the fact that God has given you life and breath. You will give an account for every moment. God placed the first image bearers in the Garden of Eden uh, to not only manage and keep the garden, they were commanded to live according to a particular arrangement. That is, a, a, a covenant. God clearly communicated uh, that the produce in the garden was theirs to utilize. However, God placed a prohibition upon them. Adam, in particular, was charged and warned in regards to his responsibility as it pertained to the fruit of the garden. The responsibility included a prohibition against the eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Should that prohibition be violated, the penalty was death. We have argued that the creation account contains a twin emphasis. First, the essential equality of both male and female image bearers. Second, that within the creation account, there are a number of important aspects within that account that communicate the importance of designated or assigned roles within the family, within the relationship between the man and the woman. He has designed his male and female image bearers to live within the bounds and boundaries of heterosexual, monogamous, and covenantal marriage, just as a bit of an aside. And I've really wanted to respond to this and respond to it pretty sharply. But you may have seen in the news this week that the nation of Uganda has uh, passed a law criminalizing certain behaviors 
related to the alphabet soup that seems to ever expand of human perversion. And the President of the United States jumped up to criticize that sovereign nation uh, for what they had done. And he said that, that this law was a tragic violation of universal human rights. I can't tell you how badly I wanted to exegete that. Rights? Wait a minute. In your moral universe, there is no truth. How can there be rights if there are no truth? What, what in the world are we talking about? I mean, it just... In this crazy world, how can you talk about... Some, I mean, who, who define, what is the source of authority from which the rights flow? There's no transcendent reality. I mean, it's even, just to digress one more time, I laugh out loud when I hear of college students or college athletes in particular being suspended for this and that and the other when those who suspend them are standing there and they're teaching every day that there's no such thing as objective morality. Well, how can you say these kids did something wrong? I mean, we've got a logical contradiction. We, we've got that which is absolutely irrational. They're reducing the world to utter nonsense. Okay. All right. That was for free. There are various indicators within chapter 2 particularly that inform us as to the reality of roles for the male and, for, and roles for the female that can't be changed, they can't be abandoned, they can't be distorted, they cannot be reassigned. That the man was designed, he was designated to lead. How do I argue that from Genesis 2? Well, we find in chapter 2 verse 7 that Adam was created first, which Paul definitively notes in 1 Timothy 2.13 as crucial to understanding this business of authority and submission for the hierarchy to, that should exist within uh, the home. That God communicated the covenant of works to Adam first, before the woman was created. That the female image bearer, uh, the partner, in, in, or the essential partner in this business of, of uh, ruling and stewarding the earth, she is, again, an essential partner in this endeavor. So she is not to be diminished. She is not to be uh, in any way demeaned for how God designed her, how God created her. The female is described in chapter 2, verse 18, as Adam's helper. That's not a demeaning term, but it does indicate and emphasize the reality of a hierarchy related to order and authority. She is special and very much like the man, but there are important and necessary distinctions. The woman was not only created second, she was created from the man's side. The, the man, in some instrumental sense, is the source of the woman. God created her, but she came from the man. And then in chapter 2, verse 23, the man names the woman as indicative of what? His authority, his right to exercise authority within that home. So marriage is intrinsically 
important. Marriage is essential for the male and female image bearers to feel and, uh, to feel and rule the earth. The most important aspect of marriage is that it portrays Christ and his great love for his church. So, if marriage is intrinsically good, and it is, then why is it so tough? Why is it that over the last 50 years there's been an ever-escalating suspicion, hostility, perversion, distortion, and disregard, not only in the world, you know what I'm going to say next, not only in the world, not only in the pagan, godless, unbelieving world, but in those that at least say, oh, how I love Jesus. We have undermined the integrity of that which God has created for His glory and for our good. How can we disregard that which God Himself described and defined as good? Well, we'll see in Genesis 3 not only why life in general is difficult, but again, it follows as to why marriage is is so tough. So, verse 1, we see here one identified as the serpent, a diabolical interloper, an unwelcome guest there in that pristine garden. And we are told that he was crafty, that he was cunning. Now, here, context is important. This, this Hebrew word, arum, uh, can be used uh, in, a, in a positive way to Maybe talk about someone that's shrewd or something that's shrewd. But here it has negative connotations of one who is cunning, who is sneaky, who is seeking uh, to undermine that which God has designed and defined uh, as good. There's a lot of speculation about the nature of the beast as, as again, the nature of the particular tree called the tree of knowledge of good and evil. I don't, I don't want to get into uh, that. But we, we understand, I think if we... And one of the hard things in terms of being a Bible student is how do you read a text, particularly an Old Testament text? Do you, do you try to get into the shoes, so to speak, of Adam and Eve? Because from their perspective, God hasn't warned them, to our, at least to our knowledge, of a serpent, that there's, there, that there's one in the garden. If you see him, take the hoe and chop his head off. We really don't, we don't have that. And, and so uh, what's going on there? And then how is it that as Moses wrote this and, and gave it to that, that nation at Sinai, how would have they have understood it? I, they certainly knew what evil was, uh, but did they have a concept of a personal evil one, namely uh, the devil? And then how did the old covenant community later read this text? And then should we, as new covenant Christians look back and read into it our entirety of understanding as to the identity of the serpent. And to be sure, I believe the serpent is the one that is described in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 as that anointed cherubim that was cast out of heaven for his prideful rebellion against Almighty God. I think that corresponds to 2 Peter 2.4 and to Jude 6. And so we have the, the serpent. He is uh, Satan there in this animal uh, form. 
And he has a strategy, and that is to create doubt and to utilize lies in creating that doubt. Jesus uh, described him in uh, John chapter 8 and verse 44 as the father of lies. And that when he speaks, he speaks his native language of lying. So he had a particular uh, strategy by which he was going to create this mayhem in the life of uh, this first couple. And to be sure, uh, that strategy is still working uh, today. Uh, he, he lies. He causes uh, both believer and unbeliever to question uh, the goodness and the wisdom of God. Uh, he, he causes the believer and the unbeliever to doubt uh, the, the Word of God. Several years ago, I ran across a book by John Piper called Engaging uh, Unbelief or Battling Unbelief. I can't remember. I believe it's Battling Unbelief. And he, he offered a particular nuance to, to sin that kind of ha I hadn't really thought about. But sin is ultimately unbelief. That, that, that is what causes us to sin, that we believe the lie of sin I mean, now, I mean, you don't, listen, and young people listen to this. You don't go do and do something incredibly stupid thinking it's going to destroy your life. You don't abuse substances. You don't get involved in immoral activity thinking, well, this is just going to ruin my life and I just can't wait. Do you? You, you believe the lie that, that this is going to bring pleasure to me, right? And you, you're unbelieving the Word of God. So all of this is rooted in the doubting of the Word of God, the doubting of the character of God. This unbelief leads us in and through sin. And so uh, the devil uh, has a particular uh, strategy, and it's still in play today. And his goal is always your destruction, okay? And again, what I see going on in the world today, it, it is, and I think the philosophical term is nihilism. It is just, I'm not trying to do anything. I just want to destroy everything that has any value or virtue. I just want to see it gone. I, I, want, to, I want to see human identity gone. I want to see male-female identity gone. I want to see the worth of the image bearer gone. I want to see everything just destroyed so there's nothing. That's nihilism. That's, they, have, they have no real purpose other than to just destroy. So Satan has a particular strategy. He has a particular goal, and that is destruction. But hear this, church. His destiny is sure and certain. He will be defeated. In fact, he is a defeated enemy. And Christ has said what? I will build my church. And the gates of hell, what does he mean by that? That which represents all the strength, the might, the power, all the strategy of Satan, it will never stand against my gospel. It will accomplish his purpose. And so, yes, is this world a tough place because of what's going on, what went on here? Yeah. But take heart. What did Jesus say? I've overcome sin, death, hell, and the grave. All right. Let's look at his deceitful assault here. Still in verse 1, we see a, an initial uh, question there. Did God actually say? 
Can you kind of think about this? Just reflect for just a moment. Would, would you give me just a moment of your time? Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Notice there. That's not in all what he said. Now, now, evidently, Satan had access to the divine commands, whether he overheard them, uh, God talking to his image bearers there in the garden, but he had some knowledge of, of what the command was related to, but he completely, in asking the question, throws it out of kilter because God did not say that you can't have of any tree. He says you got every tree, and you eat of it freely, but there's one tree, that you do not have the right to eat. And so she gives a rather convoluted answer beginning in verse 2. We may eat of the trees of the garden, but God said not only shall you not eat, but you shall not touch it. Now God didn't say anything about touching it. Now, here's where we get into some, some really good questions, I think. And, and, you know, I would just say to you that grew up wild and free, Maybe you were method. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. But, you know, if you haven't had a really upfront and personal association with legalism, I, I really offended a pastor friend of mine, and I really enjoyed it Friday night, when I, when I accused him of going to Tennessee Temple. And he just bowed up, I'm like, I did. very fundamentalist legalistic school in Chattanooga, Tennessee, uh, because he was criticizing me because I wasn't in the parking lines straight enough to suit him, just so you know the context there. But legalism will destroy you like license will destroy you. Now, how did the, where did this don't touch it business come from? Now, had she and Adam sat down and, and maybe they thought, you know what, we know we shouldn't eat this. And just, just so we, we're, we, we build wide margins, we're going to build wide margins here. We're not ever going to even touch it. So, so maybe, maybe it was something that they, they, they talked about, but it wasn't something that God commanded. You know, I, and again, if you've never grown up in the shadow of legalism, you just haven't lived. But, but you know, this whole, I mean, I get it. I, I get it. Well, we don't go to movies which makes me far more spiritual than you. Right off, I mean, right off the bat, I got you right there. That's a trump card. I don't go to movies. I don't, I don't listen to rock music neither. I mean, we could go down the laundry list, couldn't we? Okay? Don't be laughing out there. There's no laughing in church. But sometimes there's wisdom in saying there's certain movies, certain songs, certain television programs. I'm just not going to watch them. And, you know, hey, and, and maybe sometimes it goes so far, if i got to throw that nasty television in the, in the junk pile just to keep me from watching the, ooh, I was about to say something ugly, some junk on television, then that's what i got to do. Okay? But we want to be careful that our pursuit of holiness and obedience doesn't become some type of legalism <sighs> by which I find myself according to my own judgment, to be far superior to you, right? Okay, so, but, so what, whatever was going on there, she added to the Word of God, which is as dangerous as taken away from the Word of God. And so the serpent comes back, verse 4, you will not surely die. You know how God is. God overstates her. Listen, God wants to withhold a blessing from you 
If you'll just cross that boundary, you will know everything that's good. Because look at verse 5. Your eyes will be open. You'll be like God. I mean, listen. Rooted deep within the heart of every creature is the desire to be the creator. Okay? I mean... And I, and I, you know, as I watch kids, I, I, I let, let me tell you something. Somewhere deep within our heart, and usually not too deep, there's always this desire that I will overthrow, I will rebel, whatever the authority is. It doesn't matter if it's coming from mom and daddy, it doesn't matter if it's coming from the state, it doesn't matter if it's coming from a school team, police officer, you name it. If it's, if it's oppressing me, yeah. I'm going, I'm going to throw off those restraints. And so he contradicts God. He lies to, uh, this, uh, the, to the woman. And yet in some way, he, it's kind of true. You'll know good and evil. But your life, in contrast to what you know now, you will have a full knowledge of a living hell, as will all that are descended from you. And so, uh, she took, she considered all of this. It's interesting to follow the, uh, the verbs in, in verse uh, 6, okay? Uh, or even going back, she, she listened and she heard and she formed her own opinion. Then she saw, she desired, she took, and she ate and she gave. Boom, 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 boom. And, and it really, you could, you could flesh this out. I don't, we don't have time today, but just how sin works. You know, we kind of think about it. We kind of play with it in our mind. Don't look at me spiritual. I know how y'all are. Okay? Yeah. We, we kind of turn it over in our mind, and then we figure a way to kind of negotiate with what we know to be true, what we know the Bible says, and then what we do. We, we take it, and we eat it. So, now... So uh, she took, she ate, she gave some to the husband who was with her. Man, Adam, what in the world are you thinking? What are you doing? Where are you? Where's your head in all of this? So then he ate. Their eyes were open and... Their innocence was lost. This, this state in which they had no fear of being accepted by each other. They, they knew there would be no criticism. There would be nothing that would be demeaning from either side. And now all of a sudden, oh my gosh, I don't have clothes. I'm naked. I'm ashamed. My guilt, my inadequacy in some, some level is exposed. And here you see in verse 7, the first man-centered, man-made religion. We're going to cover our guilt by that which we do. And again, that is the basis for all false religion, okay? I'm going to appease God. I'm going to kind of calm my, my, my conscience, my anxieties about life and death and that which is beyond by something that I can do. Now, I, I don't, let me just say a, a very, very quick word, 
and, and we do have to think about it. Why the tree? Why the serpent? Why give them a choice? Why not put a fence around it? Why not put the, the angel with the sword in front of the tree before putting it at, uh, you know, before putting them at the gate of the garden that they were banished from? Why, why allow all of this? And if you tell me, well, God just wanted to give them a free will. I'm going to give you my best Colonel Nathan Jessup voice. If you'll remember the way he says, please tell me you have something more, Lieutenant. These two Marines are on trial for their lives. Please tell me their lawyer hasn't pinned their hopes to a phone bill. Please tell me that your explanation for all of the suffering, all the sickness, all the death, all the sadness, is God just wants to see how people would do with free will. He, he just thought it would be exciting to watch them choose. Listen, parent, you break a glass object in the kitchen, and your kid comes in, you know, two, three, four years old, oh, that's shiny and glittery. I want to get right in the middle of it and stomp on it with my bare feet. And you go... Well, because that's your free will and that's your choice and I value that choice above everything in the universe and I don't spend, mind spending the night down at Children's in the emergency room getting 747 stitches in your feet. I just want to let you exercise that. Right? No. Listen, parent, you don't care about your kid's free will. Not ultimately. What you care about is the truth. What is right. What is protecting No, let me tell you. The language is hard to come up with. But God ordained and God permitted the rebellion so that he would display his greatest glory in the work of redemption through his son, Jesus Christ. That what otherwise would not have been seen in terms of his grace, his mercy, his power, his authority, his wisdom, his goodness, his holiness, his justice, his wrath, and his love, and so much more would not have been seen had he not permitted had he not ordained this act of rebellion which plunged all men into sin. Please tell me that all the suffering in the world, all of it has come about, that there's something greater than God just wants to see how free will would work out. What is at stake? The ultimate explanation is it came about so that God would display his glory in redemption. Okay? Please, please, please understand that. All right. We see the woman's decision she gave to the husband, and disaster ensued. Verse 8, we see this business of the divine investigation, even the divine interrogation. Uh, the Lord comes to the couple, and right here, right here, I think you see a glimpse of the gospel. The gospel is that God is seeking and God is acting. What does man do in terms of the truth, in terms of the gospel? They always have since this moment, and they always will till the day Jesus returns. They will hide themselves from the truth, from the one who is true. And so they hide, and man has been hiding from God ever since. And so in verse 9, look here. God called to the man. Why? Because he was the authority 
within that home. He was the one charged with the responsibility of teaching his wife everything that God had taught him, to disciple his, his wife so that she would have the knowledge of God's truth. And he was calling the man to give an account for his failure. It's not that the woman is not going to be responsible for her sin, but he speaks to the man first. And the man's little flimsy excuse, verse 10, and he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and hid myself. Now he has a sense of the guilt from his act of uh, rebellion. But notice what God says. Who told you that you were naked? Where in the world did that idea come, up for, come from? Yeah, Y'all were in outstanding condition the last time we met. There was not a problem with being innocent before me and with each other. Being unashamed. Who told you that? Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Let's go back to the covenant. Let's go back to the law. Have you eaten? Have you eaten of that tree in which I gave you instructions not to eat of it? He took the law and he punctured their heart to expose their guilt. Now, men, and we've been doing this, this since that day, we played the blame game. We didn't step up and take responsibility for the failure. This woman you gave to me. I mean, listen, it's not just the woman's fault. It's God's fault. You gave me the woman. If you hadn't have given me the woman, I wouldn't have messed up. Yeah. And hey, listen, confession time. <laughs> Every time I do something stupid, you, know, you name it, you know, whatever, you, any category. First thing, who am I going, I got to find somebody to blame. It can't be me. I mean, it's just a, my, the fallen reality of the way I think. We do. Now, now, again, hopefully that's just the impulse that I so wait a minute, you did it. <laughs> You're responsible. Now you got to go fix it. You got to clean the mess up. But yeah, we've all been doing that ever since. And so after questioning the man, God turns to the woman and begins to inquire of her. And he is going to exact upon himself, upon them, and upon us, a devastating curse. It's interesting. I think one of the greatest theologians of the 20th century spoke to this issue or tried, answered this question. Was God too tough on those first human rebels? Well, let's see what this man who knows the ultimate truth had to say about that. Since God is slow to anger and patient, then why, when man first sinned, was his wrath and punishment so severe and long-lasting? Time out. <laughs> Didn't we just have that question a second ago? We did. Yeah, it's a little, I think a little, we little did. Nuance. That God's punishment for Adam was so severe. This creature from the dirt <laughs> defied 
the everlasting holy God. After that God had said, the day that you shall eat of it, you shall surely die. And instead of dying, Thanatos, that day, he lived another day and was clothed in his nakedness by pure grace and had the consequences of a curse applied for quite some time. But the worst curse would come upon the one who seduced him, whose head would be crushed by the seed of the woman. And the punishment was too severe? What's wrong with you people? I'm serious. I mean, this is what's wrong with the Christian church today. We don't know who God is. And we don't know who we are. The question is, the question is, why wasn't it infinitely more severe? If we have any understanding of our sin and any understanding of who God is, that's the question, isn't it? Hopefully, you can take that question off your to-ask list. We see that God, based on His warning, enacts a curse that extends really to the entirety of creation. He speaks to the serpent, he speaks to the woman, and then he speaks finally to Adam. And in this, this is why life and marriage is so tough. In verses 14 and 15, we see that essentially the serpent shall be the most cursed of all the creatures, that he shall live on his belly, experience the ultimate humility, that is the eating of dust, that he shall always be at enmity with the human race. And again, a reminder that from that point forward, there's going to be two realms in the world represented by two kings. One king's name is Jesus and one king's name is Serpent. But let me assure you, the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ is the victorious, is the superior kingdom. And so... Your defeat, however, and look at verse 15. What do we call that? The proto-euangelion. Some call it the first glimpse of the gospel. I've already cited one that might even precede that, the Lord seeking. And as we close, I've got one more for you that precedes this, I think. But what? The offspring of the woman, even though the woman has precipitated rebellion... She is going to be blessed by delivering the offspring that indeed he shall be bruised upon the cross, but he's going to deliver the death blow to the serpent. That is the truth and the triumph of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then after speaking to the serpent, he speaks to uh, the woman beginning there in verse 16. And all of you mothers say, amen. Right? Now listen, I think the pain in childbearing begins when you even think about having a, having a baby. Now again, I'm not denying children are great blessings. I, please don't. But 
is painful all the way through the rearing process, is it not? It is a challenge. Even the most uh, uh, compliant of children still are a challenge. That, that there shall be pain in the bearing of children, and there shall be conflict between you and your husband. I think the, this ESV does a little better than most translations. I think that some of the translations, your desire shall be for your husband, and people go, well, that just means they're going to desire to love each other and be intimate. No, 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 no. That's not what's going on here. Your desire shall be to usurp the role, the rightful, God-designated, God-designed role of the husband. Your desire shall be to, in a domineering, usurping way, to overcome his authority. Who do I always refer to when I mention this? Because we laugh about it. Who's the classic domineering wife on television? Lucy Ricardo. Think about it. She's always trying to get out from Ricky's heavy hand. And that's the, that is an eternal conflict within the home that can occur, that can only be reversed through the power of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So not only does she desire to usurp, the husband acts as a despot. He dominates in an unchristlike, an ungodly way and crushes the spirit of the wife, creating immense, enormous even at times irreconcilable difficulties uh, within uh, the home. And then finally, in verses 17 through 19, God speaks to Adam. Because you listened to the voice of your wife, because you've rebelled against me, eaten what I told you, the ground is cursed. We'll talk more next week about all of the implications of the cursed ground, okay? But life is difficulty difficult by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread where the work was going to be entirely productive prior to the fall now you will be frustrated by how difficult it is to grow good tomatoes in your backyard okay to 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 keep a roof over your head one of you know i've got several cliches and y'all know them all by now but one of the first things I tell a young couple, you know, oh, I'm in love, I want to get married, I want to have his babies, you know, that, 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 that type of thing. Do you realize, do you have any clue how much money it's going to take for you to live? And how hard it's going to be to get that money? And, and because of that difficulty, that both, both the man and the woman feel the weight of, of this challenge, and it creates conflict in the home. And, and again, the woman domineering and the husband dominating. Or, or maybe it's the husband that just neglects. And, and the woman has to flow into the vacuum at some level just to keep a roof over everybody's head. And I'll just tell you, I'm not going to finish this today anyway, so might as well just digress one more time. I've told you a number of times about a book written by Thomas Sowell. Got a good title, Black Rednecks and White Liberals. I mean, if that's not a classic title, there is not one in existence. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. Listen to me. He makes the claim, basically, that in the poorer section of the white community and in the black community, there is an inherited culture that comes to this country from the Scottish Highlands and it is characterized by irresponsible, lazy men 
who have no regard for education, have no regard for learning a trade, have no regard for being productive in their work. They are irresponsible. They abandon their families, and they're prone to violence. Okay? You, you, see, all of, you see all of that flowing out of this curse, that, that men, yeah, they'll be dominating, and, 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 and at the same time, they'll be irresponsible and absolutely abandon their families. And so we see the repercussions. Why is it marriage is tough? Life is tough because of the curse. And again, the reminder that death will come just as God warned and promised. So the disastrous consequences, verse 20, very quickly. Once again, reminded of the man's authority and calling his wife's name Eve. Then the Lord God, another foreshadowing of the gospel, what did he do? He made for Adam and his wife garments of skin. He covered their nakedness. He covered their guilt and their shame. What does the Lord Jesus Christ do? Here was the first substitute, the ultimate substitute, the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross at Calvary. He sheds his blood to cover our guilt and our shame just as this first sacrifice was slaughtered to cover the guilt and the shame of the first couple. And so they are banished from the garden and he is sent out to work the ground, to be frustrated by that work, to be impoverished at times by that work. For because the ground is cursed, nature actually works against him in pursuing and carrying out this mandate. And so we see many of the explanations for why it is we struggle. Why, why it is that we're tempted to abandon the great reality of the goodness of marriage. In this curse, I believe we can understand the, the personal internal conflicts we feel, the guilt, the anxiety, the depression as a man. And I can remember when I ran my business coming home at midnight and being frustrated that I didn't make more money than I did and being frustrated that my, my wife was left alone and my kids, I wasn't, I mean, you, you experience all of this, okay? All of this flows out. Of, this, of the fall. And then there's the interpersonal conflict between uh, the husbands and the wives, not to mention the conflicts between them and their rebellious children. And all of the deprivation and all of the pressures that deprivation causes. And then, again, this business of mortality. Again, what we see here, and we can understand it from a New Testament perspective, because of Adam's rebellion, sin entered our realm. We became sinners. We sin because we are sinners in Adam. Adam was a failure as the first Adam, and Jesus is the triumphant second Adam that this all points to. And here's the thing. Since we were banished from the garden, the heart of man, is eternally restless, eternally anxious, eternally seeking for that which is, will satisfy that in which he can find serenity and security and even sanity. But they will never acknowledge that that can only be found in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Indeed, marriage is 
Ultimately well thought out. It is well designed. It is a great and good gift still. But because of Genesis 3, it's tough. And so in the next couple of weeks, we're going to look at this a little more closely. And then hopefully we can see how indeed we can reverse the curse. And the, the joy of the gospel would reign triumphant even within our homes, even in a world in which life is indeed tough. Pray with me. Father, how we thank you for your truth. It is a sobering truth. Uh, it's a sad truth. Uh, but yet, even in the sadness, we begin to see a glimpse of the joy of your gospel. May we look forward to him who did not fail, who is the faithful husband, whose name is Jesus Christ. May we live in light of him being our substitute, he being the one who has covered our guilt and our shame, he being the one that leads us into faithfulness and obedience uh, to him as our Lord and Savior. And Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.